and welcome to the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Boom, Research Fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology, and today we're going wild in the UK. Being an island and all, we have a lot of coast and hence marine habitats literally all around us, but they're not all doing as well as they could or should. To improve the conditions of our marine habitats, we can either reduce pressure on systems by establishing protected areas, for example, and allowing them to recover naturally, or we can go and actively restore habitats and species. Or, of course, we could do a combination of the two. Today, we'll be proactive, though, and look at what's possible in terms of habitat restoration. We'll do this by looking at four key habitats, salt marsh, seagrass, kelp, and oyster beds. We'll find out how these habitats are doing, what's done to restore them, and hear about some of the weird and wonderful species relying on these habitats. But before we meet our wonderful, glorious habitats, let's meet the equally glorious Celine Gamble, a project manager in the estuaries and wetlands team here at ZSL, who works on the Native Oyster Network and other restoration projects. Essentially, I will be relying on Celine's pearls of wisdom throughout this podcast. Now, Celine, now that we have the inevitable oyster pun out of the way, why oysters? Why do they need a network? So for most people, they may be familiar with oysters in terms of their food delicacy, or perhaps even their supposed aphrodisiac qualities. Sadly, I can't eat oysters, but I have learnt to appreciate them for despite their small size and often hidden habitat, they're capable of making some huge changes in our marine environment. And for that reason, I like to think of them as little ecological superheroes of the sea. Why are they ecological superheroes? So basically, left undisturbed, oysters will settle on top of one another, forming a complex three-dimensional reef structure. So much like coral reef systems in tropical seas or trees in a forest, oysters grow a habitat in which other species thrive, creating marine megacities. So when we talk about oyster beds, it's not really anything to do with fluff pillows or... Sadly not, no. We're talking about beds, and sometimes we refer to them as reefs, actually. And also it provides a suitable nursery habitat and refuge for an incredible diversity of fish species, including sea bass and critically endangered species such as the spiny seahorse and European eel. So they also are capable of filtering water. So a single oyster filters around 200 litres of water per day, which when you think of the millions of oysters that come together to form a reef, you have an ecosystem that's powerful enough to vastly improve our coastal water quality. So they really are ecological superheroes. Exactly, and that's just two out of my like many points that I could say about oysters. Big love for the mollusks <laughs> and their filtering capacity. So why is now the time to specifically discuss restoration of these habitats? Why now? So as we know, marine habitats are essential for the health of our marine ecosystems and they hold environmental and social importance, providing valuable ecosystem services. But we've sadly lost around 49% of our seagrass in the last 35 years, 95% of our oyster beds and around 85% of our salt marsh in England. And 50% of our coastal fish stocks are either overfished or data deficient. So our shifting baselines means that it's gone from living memory of what clean, healthy, safe, productive, biological, diverse seas are like. And I choose those words carefully as they represent the vision of our UK government since 2002, saying that we will have achieved it in 22 years. So the 25-year environment plan, which is the report that's set out by the government to action and help the natural world regain and retain good health, their kind of goal is for us to be the first generation to leave our environment in a better state than what we found it in. However, in recent assessments, it's evident that there are significant challenges to meet these objectives. So there are kind of two approaches that we can go towards to achieve marine habitat restoration. The first is reducing pressure on the system and allowing natural recovery, which is kind of what you imagine when you come to marine conservation zones, or taking positive action to restore marine habitats and species. And I think in the terrestrial environment, it's long been accepted that active intervention is required to restore nature. And it's quite usual for us to put a meander back in the river or reforest or even deforest. So why is it not the norm in the temperate marine environment? Mm. And we believe that that active intervention is really necessary to basically kickstart that recovery. It's particularly timely right now as we're entering the UN Decade of Ecological Restoration, which was conceived as a means of highlighting the need for creating increased global cooperation to restore degraded and destroyed ecosystems and contributing to the efforts to combat climate change and safeguard biodiversity and food security and water supply. So in the past five to ten years, there's been some new native oyster restoration projects that have been established. 
There's two flagship projects in Essex, so the Essex Native Oyster Restoration Initiative, chaired by ZSL, and the Solent Oyster Restoration Project by the Blue Marine Foundation and the University of Portsmouth. And these projects identified the need for a network to support the growing need of the species and facilitated much needed communication sharing within the community. So this is where the Native Oyster Network for UK and Ireland was born, established by ZSL and the University of Portsmouth. And it's basically working to try and communicate between projects, um, so Native Oyster Restoration Projects around the UK and Ireland. So there are now seven restoration projects around the UK. So they've identified that we have a lot of hard work to do in order to bring back the species. So let's stick with oysters for now then, because they're awesome. They're ecological superheroes. And bring in our first guest, Dr. Joanne Preston from, as you already mentioned, the University of Portsmouth, which has founded the Native Oyster Network in collaboration with ZSL. Why oysters? I think why oysters is because one of the most imperiled ecosystems on our planet, and particularly the marine environment, And we've forgotten what this looks like. We've been fishing them out in their millions for 150 years. And so we have no idea actually what these temperate oyster reefs look like before humans got their hands on them. So we actually don't know the degree with which they can provide all this amazing biodiversity and filtration services. We just glimpse a little bit of it, like a shadow image of what it was before. So this is why we need to bring it back and demonstrate a little bit of how it can serve us as humans and how we can restore the marine environment. Wow, so in many ways it's also a little bit of an experiment of what's even possible and what we can rebuild, so to speak. Absolutely. It may be the fact that our water quality won't support these ecosystems like we did before, of course, oysters will improve the water quality. So it is absolutely sort of new territory. So why are oyster beds such important habitats? Are they just good for oysters or are other things also dependent on them? Well, this is what we're starting to find out, really understanding what species will come and settle and grow and live amongst the oyster beds. Like a coral reef, it forms a three-dimensional structure with lots of nooks and crannies. It has lots of other creatures growing on it that's food for small fish and big fish. And so what it does, it supports not just other oysters, a whole sort of food web of other species. In our oyster cages we've had hanging off marinas to try and sort of get lots of oyster babies out into the system. We've seen many, many European eels nestling in there. You'd get benthic sharks, you know, foraging across them. Sea bass juveniles would live there. Starfish, seahorses, lots of different types of shrimps. So you get a really incredible, beautiful array of both sort of settled things that just live on the oyster and mobile things that will come and nibble. So what's your favourite one of the non-oyster species that, that you found? Well, it's a sort of tied first place between the seahorse and the nudibranch. <gasps> These are such beautiful, charismatic creatures. You know, they both are. So there's the, the short-nosed, spiny seahorse. And there's this tiny, tiny little nudibranch, and they really are quite beautiful, those mollusk fans out there. <laughs> uh, yes, mollusks forever. So, Joanne, Celine, how do you go about restoring oysters? You already hinted at oyster babies, and I'm very, very keen on getting more yeah. details on that because that sounds adorable. So how does one go about it? Well, I guess the problem is we're here because there's no oysters hardly left at all. So in some areas when there's just enough oysters that sort of are still reproducing, producing little babies, then you can think what can we put on the seabed oysters are gregarious they like to cuddle they like to settle on each other their best settlement surface is another oyster but we've taken all that habitat out so you can see it just cuts off the loop so in some places they are reproducing there's a small population we can put some shells down otherwise we can have to try and breed oysters in hatcheries and produce all these oyster babies and then maybe settle those onto shell and put the shell with the oyster babies on back into the sea now that's obviously quite a big undertaking and requires lots of permissions and legislations and infrastructure building so not any old person off the street can go like i'm going to go and build an oyster bed no but there are small <laughs> things you can do in the states they do the oyster gardening once you have these oyster hatcheries all set up What you can do if you have a marina or a yacht or a little jetty or a school or a community that's got access to the marine coastal environment, you can get a little cage of baby oysters and put them into the sea and you can watch them grow, see if they spawn and really help grow them up in a protected environment until they're a bit bigger and more robust and less like, like to be eaten by crabs or oyster drills and then they can go into the seabed. So hopefully we will engage the public. In some sort of oyster soap opera. Yes, or an oyster love hotel, as some people call it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love the fact that you said that they want to cuddle. I mean, that's yes. already an image that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. So what are the main lessons learned about restoring oysters? So I think it's probably about sharing that knowledge. So like I said, there's seven restoration projects taking place in the UK and Ireland at the moment. And each project are doing various different methods. And so the role of the network is to gather those methods and share kind of what everyone's doing, what's working. And we're also putting together publications of how to do native oyster restoration and how to monitor the success of the project and also information about where you'd find those oysters to bring into your project. But also people see oysters on a dinner plate. People don't see them as kind of living on the seabed and really biologically diverse. So another part of our work is trying to show people that oysters are wildlife too and they're not just a food source and they can look really amazing if you go on a dive and see them kind of smothered in various different marine vegetation. So I think it's kind of changing that dialogue. You can't do it alone. You know, this isn't a job for the academics or the NGOs or the government or the community action groups alone. We have to do it together. And what Celine was saying about these handbooks we're creating to how to monitor them. If one project's measuring in apples and others measuring in oranges, we can't compare and find out the information of how these things are working. We also need to change some of the policy around oyster restoration to enable us to do these big projects. Also, we need to carry on talking about it, informing the public. So what do you think are the main barriers when it comes to trying to restore these habitats? I think what has happened is our our coastal estuaries are exceptionally degraded environments, but we are conserving those degraded environments. It's about the concept of that sort of sliding baseline. And so an oyster reef is described as something that is sort of one and five oysters per square metre. Now that's important to preventing disease and we have to be very cautious about that. So we need to do more research to understand how disease spreads. But we also need to try and create some reference ecosystems that are not fished and show us what does an oyster reef look like that can recruit itself and be resilient to environmental changes. So there's some policy and legislation barriers to help us do that. And always money. (laughs) Oyster restoration isn't cheap. It's good value for money in the States. For every $1 invested, you get $8 back. So it's worth its while economically and for what they provide in terms of cleaning the water. But we do need a bigger input of funding probably to move oyster restoration onwards in Europe. I feel like native oysters have almost been forgotten. So historically, they would have sustained livelihoods, economies in some really kind of rural coastal communities around the UK and we've kind of forgotten a lot of that heritage and importance of this native oyster species both environmentally and culturally so for me one of the biggest barriers like I said is kind of communicating and and sharing what once was there so the fact that we had 20,000 square kilometers of oyster reefs around the UK and then how we're kind of working to bring it back so sharing the oyster love I like to say. Sharing the oyster love and the oyster culture so what was the uh, cultural role of the oyster in the past. In 1972, there's 15 million oysters were landed in the Solent. There's around 450 boats fishing it at that peak. And that is nothing before the millions that would have been landed mm. in the UK in the, in the 1800s. And that sort of shared knowledge and history of the ecosystem and, and the fishing heritage has lost as the stocks decline. There is a conversation around shifting and evolving into more sustainable fisheries and the way we manage that. And that goes on to one of the things I've really learned about this. You can't do this without the fishermen. Mm. And often it's the fishing cooperatives that have been the starting point in most of the oyster restoration projects going, we want to do something about this. Mm. And how successful have your projects been so far? That's a great question because it's so early on. <laughs> yeah, we actually yeah. don't know how successful all the projects are collectively at this moment in time. Um, so that's something that we're working on, creating those monitoring methods to try and identify that. But it takes around five to ten years to build an oyster reef. So it takes a long time. There are a few wins, though. You know, So in the Solent, for example, we've got some sanctuary zones, some no-take zones that are just barred from all fishing, which means we've got some sanctuary zones we can start to build from. We know that there's some oysters are reproducing and with these oyster cages, we've created to go in the marinas I think we've pumped out more than one billion larvae into the Solent and we're talking with the Environment Agency in Natural England and local construction workers and so many people want to make this happen so that's a real big part of the success So some of the oyster babies might have already started to cuddle Absolutely we've got evidence of some cuddling Love it. So, Celine, if our listeners would like to find out more about Celestel's oyster work, and I'm sure they will because we love the mollusks, where can they go? 
So we have a website for the Native Oyster Network, so it's nativeoysternetwork.org, but you can also search on the ZSL webpage as well. You can also follow our progress on Twitter, so our Twitter handle is nativeoysternet. Do you have updates from the oyster boxes or whatever yeah, they're so called we, again? so we have a hashtag called hashtag oysterlove, and it's all about sharing the love for oysters within the community, so people kind of tweet about when the baby's being released, it's kind of live oyster updates. Right, so Celine, there are many more coastal habitats that need help, ideally through restoration, and salt marshes, they may be one of them. Now, salt marshes, oyster beds, are they quite distinct habitats, or are they somehow connected? Yes, so just like mangroves, seagrass and corals are interconnected in tropical seas, historically salt marsh, seagrass, kelp and native oysters would all occupy our marine coastal environments from the top of the shoreline down to the subtidal. And so oysters and salt marshes can actually enhance each other. So oysters improve that water quality, which in turn reduces the smothering of salt marshes by algal mats. Oysters reduce the wave energy and erosion of salt marshes, acting as a physical barrier. And there's actually really early on studies in Portsmouth by the Institute of Marine Sciences using oyster shells and oyster reefs as a solution to rebuild salt marsh habitat. So you can actually combine the two. Right, so let's talk salt marshes with Angus Garbutt. Angus is an ecologist at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, uh, who has worked on projects that have taken him to all the major salt marsh complexes in the UK and Europe. And he has gained a unique insight into their diversity and cultural setting. Tell us a bit about the diversity of salt marshes and the salt marsh complexes in the UK. Yeah, well, salt marshes are uh, distributed all around the UK, around England, Scotland and Wales. On the east coast of the UK, you find salt marshes are slightly muddier than the west coast. That's because you've got big lowland rivers like the Thames and the Humber flowing in there with all their sediments. And it's slightly drier on the east coast than the west. And then on the west coast, with the prevailing southwesterly winds, there's more sandy marshes. They're slightly wetter as well because of the Atlantic. And the flora is slightly different. So in the south and east, the plants uh, that live there only maybe go up to the level of the Wash or the Severn estuary because it's slightly warmer. So you get plants with a bit more of a Mediterranean influence that live there. And as you go a bit further north, the plant species changes slightly. And then there's another kind of plant boundary around the Solway Firth. They're the Scottish borders. Who knew that? You know, we have Mediterranean stuff in the UK. Yeah. Excellent. So I suppose salt marshes, we've already talked about some habitats that are much more in the water. The salt marshes, mm. of course, they're kind of our coastal boundary, right? It depends really what time of day you go to look at a salt marsh or the time of year you go with certain time of year and you'll see birds breeding like skylark or meadow pipit, cows or sheep grazing, bees pollinating flowers like sea lavender um, and the other tides on big spring tides the tide will come over the salt marsh and it'll go from a terrestrial environment to a marine one and you'll get crabs, sea bass and mullet coming up into the creeks geese paddling around on the top of the salt marshes. That sounds like they have to put up a lot with, obviously, whatever terrestrial species have to put up with, but then also this sudden influx of seawater. They must have some really cool species there. They've got some, yeah, really cool species. They're really adapted to uh, living in this quite extreme environment. The plant species are well adapted to um, changes in salinity, and that's what makes salt marsh salt marsh salt tolerant species are the only ones that can live in that kind of environment and as you go up away from the sea it changes from a salt tolerant species to a terrestrial species and then with species within salt marsh you get all sorts of adaptations as spiders that live in the marsh and as the tide comes over they hold on to grass stems and live in a little air bubble and survive, sit out the tide in an air bubble That's as the amazing. tide comes over and back. There's all, all other burying beetles who live right at the bottom of the marsh on the mud flat salt marsh boundary who have little chambers and they bury into the mud. And as the tide comes over, they go into their chambers. And again, because they're so small, the air is trapped in those bubbles and they survive through the tide and then they pop out again as the tide goes back. That's fascinating. It's like a little yeah. scuba diving spider. Yeah, that's how you have to market it. Scuba diving spiders and beetles. So what would you think is, say, the poster species of a salt marsh? What's your favourite? Oh, my favourite bird's probably the red shank. They're described as the sentinels of the salt marsh. Their piping sound you can hear for miles and they're really evocative of those wide open spaces and anyone who knows salt marsh will know the sound of the red shank. So why are salt marshes culturally important apart from being a paradise for bird watchers? <laughs> 
Well, everybody has probably heard of Assault Marshall, the majority of people in the UK, but there's probably not that many people have actually been there or could actually tell you this is a salt marsh. In the past, salt marshes have been portrayed as dark and dank and dangerous places, places of kind of mists and disease. A lot of people know about Great Expectations and uh, Magwitch the murderer. He was hiding on the salt marshes. The salt marshes there were a real metaphor for kind of lawlessness and mysteriousness and that perception has creeped into the public psyche but over time perceptions have changed as we understand the natural environment now as we value it more as we talk about health and well-being uh, salt marshes and all, and all habitats have become places of kind of freedom places of you know restorative importance as well because they're one of the last natural habitats in the uk they're more or less unmanaged there's areas of salt marsh which are grazed but some salt marshes haven't been touched or managed in any way what you see today in some of those essex salt marshes would be the same as the romans would have seen that's very cool that's a very cool thought i love mm. that so how are salt marshes doing then in the uk we've already heard that oysters have to declined dramatically, hence we need restoration. How are salt marshes doing? There's regional differences. On, on the west coast, salt marshes are expanding in some areas, actually going seaward. There's a high depositional environment in the west coast, and we've actually looked at old photographs from the Second World War, mapped the areas of salt marsh from those photographs to current photographs now, and we see an expansion in the west coast. But if you look on the, the south and east coast, there's actually been erosion. You'll see these cliffs so where you've got a nice salt marsh meadow, it'll suddenly end in an abrupt cliff where there's pressure from sea level rise, increased storminess, which is chipping away at the edge of these marshes. And there's a bit of a lack of sediment on that side of the coast. So how do you go about restoring salt marshes? Well, the main way is to um, reduce pressure on sea defences. So salt marshes have been reclaimed for agriculture and other uses for centuries. And most salt marshes in the UK, well, many of them, are backed by a sea defence. So to restore a salt marsh in salt marsh area, we've been taking down sea defences, knocking holes in sea defences and flooding the agricultural land that those sea defences protect, letting the sea in and letting natural processes take place. The sea brings in sediments, marine sediments. It brings in um, larvae from shellfish. It also brings in seeds as well. So where the elevation's high enough, sediment will build up, seeds will colonise, salt marsh will grow and plant and animals communities will reassemble on what was formerly agricultural land. How long does it take for a piece of land to become classified as a salt marsh? Well, it happens quite quickly with flooded fields of um, agricultural crops. Within um, a couple of years, you'll get a cover of salt marsh vegetation and you'll get burrowing worm species will burrow into the marine sediment. And then over time, more species will come in. So salt marsh species, they come in very quickly. But in terms of looking at the plant and animal communities how close they resemble a natural marsh it takes many years people may have heard of the big storms in 1953 uh, where there's a huge storm surge came down the uh, east coast of the uk and knocked holes in many of the flood defenses and many of those sea defenses were built up again but some weren't there they're kind of unmanaged realignments but salt marsh has built up on these areas and there's also another massive storm surge in 1897 where the same thing happened so if we look at the fields which which in our salt marsh, which was created after the 1897 flood and the 1953 flood, and we look at modern managed realignment sites, which we've been working on in the last 20 years, you can see a succession and a development of the vegetation over that time. And where we find the majority of salt marsh species colonise quite quickly and are there after 20 to 50 years, there's some species are still missing. So while we can create salt marsh very easily to reassemble the exact species composition and balance of a natural marsh may take a lot longer. When you talk about oyster restoration, you start putting things in here, it seems like we're trying to take things away, i.e. the flood barriers. If they go, then we can naturally restore our salt marshes. You, we restore the salt marsh you restore the shape of the estuary you make your estuary more flood resilient i was going to say the salt marshes themselves then become the flood protection because yeah, they're buffers for wave energy so by the time the waves get to a sea defense they're lapping against the sea defense rather than if you have no salt marsh waves will just bash against the defense so you need to make that defense stronger put more concrete build it higher 
So there's, a, there's an economic value to uh, restoring salt marshes. So what are the main, pardon the pun now, the main barriers that you come up against when you try and restore salt marshes? I suppose maybe the whole let's go and take down some of those flood defences is probably one of the barriers that people might not be too keen on. Yeah, it's a really emotive subject. The sea defences have been built up over centuries. They're defending land that people own, that people grow crops on, that people have invested in. So all the managed realignment sites around the UK, there's a really um, sort of lengthy discussion about the values and the benefits of restoring salt marsh by managed realignment. And land acquisition is a big thing, you know, there's no compulsory purchase. It's really important to have that conversation with local people about what managed realignment, what salt marsh restoration can do. And, you know, flooding such a, you know, important issue. So I've been to the Solent and seen very degraded salt marshes. And is there any way that, so in estuaries that might not have quite extensive defence systems, any way of rebuilding those quite degraded salt marshes by building up that sediment artificially? Is that possible at all? It has been tried, yeah. There's a beneficial use of dredged sediments. So pumping sediments into containment areas. It's happened um, on the Solent and the Lymington marshes. They're in containing sediment and trying to replenish sediment that's been lost and reseeding that sediment with a salt marsh yeah. but to do it on a large scale with all the kind of forces of nature is a tricky thing I think definitely I remember also yeah. seeing someone who's creating an artificial jetty mm-hmm. and seeing just how much of the kind of salt marshes behind that artificial jetty yeah. it saved yes yeah, salt marshes rely on sediment and sediment stability fine sediments and clays only settle out where there's slack water so that's why you, if you look along a coast the sediments are graded on storm beaches you get big pebbles on quieter beaches you get nice sand and then in estuaries you know at really slack water all the fine sediments drop out so anywhere you've got structure that'll slow down the velocity of the water you'll get fine sediments drop out and create this kind of muddy organic soils with on which salt marshes can grow and um, something we haven't talked about is uh, a plant called common cord grass and that was uh, a hybrid between a european cord grass spotina maritima and an american cord grass which came over in the ballast of ships in the late 1800s, Spartina alterniflora. And these, the American cord grass and the European one hybridised to create a new species. And what people found is this hybrid species could actually colonise below the lower limit of European salt marshes. And when this discovered, in the 1920s onwards, people planted common cord grass around the UK. And what that did, planted in front of salt marshes, it actually acted as a filter and slowed down sediments mm-hmm. and uh, expanded the area of sediment, which is a really useful tool for land reclamation. Mm. There's also detrimental size of, of anything. There's been work done showing that it actually covered uh, bird feeding areas, so reduced mm-hmm. the size of bird feeding areas on the mudflats. But it's a really significant um, plant species. So if people want to help save our salt marsh, mm-hmm. what can they do? Where can they find out more? We've got a salt marsh app and um, you can look at the common salt marsh species on there, help, help you identify them and the salt marsh invertebrates and birds as well. And you can go to your local salt marsh and you can identify certain types of salt marsh, like a flowery salt marsh, a grassy salt marsh or a rushy salt marsh and look at the type of sediment in that salt marsh and you can plug this information into your app and they'll tell you how much carbon is stored in the salt marsh and they store a lot of carbon. Excellent. So I suppose the take-home message is get to love your local salt marsh. It's not, as we just talked about in literature, just a scene of horrible crimes. It's actually the home of scuba diving spiders. So Celine, what got you into freshwater and marine conservation in the UK? I mean, I know many marine biologists, they seek more tropical climes for their work. Yeah, that is true. Um, <laughs> I studied at the University of Exeter Falmouth campus and actually learned to dive in the UK in December in Falmouth. <laughs> and so everywhere else is just too warm. Exactly. Oh, okay. Maybe I just like the cold. No, um, I'd like to think that the incredible diversity of species that live in the marine habitats that we're talking about actually rival our tropical seas. So when I dived for the first time in the UK, I thought it was incredible. Granted, I hadn't dived anywhere else I also love rooting for an underdog who doesn't like an underdog like so the I, humble oyster like the humble oyster exactly so I like to think that some of these species like the oyster are often seen as that and so I like to kind of root for the underdog so now for our next habitat or underdog habitat now when I hear kelp I always think cute sea otters on the west coast of North America but there's kelp right here in the UK right yes exactly yep and does it also come with otters 
I'm hoping that Ian can answer that for us. But I do know that kelp can be found all around the coast of the UK with forests developing in areas with a suitably rocky seabed. And the UK actually has the most diverse community of kelp species compared to any other country in Europe. So the thick floating forest of kelp provides food, shelter for juvenile fish, which in turn can attract larger fish and predators like the grey seal and our otter. So with that in mind, I'd like to introduce Dr Ian Hendy from the Blue Marine Foundation, who can tell us more about it. And he's here to help the kelp. That's an excellent slogan. I love it. So why is kelp important? Oh, for several reasons, in actual fact. So kelp is what we call an ecosystem engineer. What it does, it draws down atmospheric carbon. So it reduces the impact of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. So it creates a carbon sink. And it also creates habitat for many organisms. It becomes a spawning site for fish commercially important fish, crustaceans, cuttlefish, all these other aspects, and it improves water quality as well. So it's very important for our local waters. Sounds a bit like a rainforest of the sea. That's exactly what it is. It's very lush, it's very green, and very beautiful, in fact, when you're actually in the water. It purifies water, makes it nice and clear, so you can actually see all the fish and all the animals in there. So does it really look like an underwater forest? Is it really dense? Absolutely. What does it feel like yeah. to be in, so, a, in a kelp forest? So kelp is a seaweed, it's an alga, it's not a plant. It has what we call a holdfast, which attaches itself to a rocky substrata, the stipe, which is almost a bit like a tree trunk, but it's about two inches thick. It's very leathery and very strong, and it can go up to about 25 metres in length, or depending on the depth of the water. All right, So it requires sunlight because it mm-hmm. needs to photosynthesise. Then it has very long, elongate, leaf-like fronds that capture the UV light under the water. And it's that complexity when it's swaying in the water that creates this forest-like atmosphere underwater where you see the fish and you see the crabs all interacting within the labyrinth of these underwater forests. Now I see why you didn't opt for the tropical climbs, Celine. Exactly. How amazing does that sound? So how is kelp doing in the UK? So we're all reporting habitat loss and such is the case with increasing human populations around our coasts, increasing urban developments... But within the UK, by the end of the century, if we carry on at the same rate of loss, we'll have zero kelp forest left. Zero. Zero. None. Zero. By the end of the century. Wow. So we're losing, A, a very effective carbon sink, but yeah. also this wonderful so, habitat for us, so we're, fish we're, stocks, for example. Absolutely. Bang on right. So kelp will draw down, depending on the density of kelp, anywhere between 150 up to just under 400 tonnes of carbon per kilometre per year from the atmosphere. And it does this very rapidly. It's very productive. It actually grows at up to 20 to 30 times faster than terrestrial plants in terms of its drawdown of carbon. Wow. Now, if we lose the kelp, we lose that ability to draw down carbon, of course, but 90% of our coastal marine life are dependent upon kelp. So if kelp disappears, what we're doing effectively is creating what we call a phase shift, going from a steady state to an unstable state, barren desert. What this is then doing is a knock-on effect for our local communities. Our fishermen are no longer going to be able to uh, uh, catch fish, of course, because there's going to be a reduction in what we call the nursery function. Mm. So there's going to be a lack of spawning sites, lack of future fish generations for the area, and reduced water quality. Kelp Mm. purifies the water, oxygenates the water. So it's going to actually impact all of these ecosystems. Wow, I was about to ask you essentially what your favourite non-kelp species is that lives in kelp forests. But it seems like there's tons of them. Yeah, absolutely. But you still have a favourite. I do have a (laughs) favourite, but they range from anything from our common lobster, the blue lobster, which are absolutely stunningly beautiful, to sea bream, to bass, to seals. But my favourite, without a shadow of a doubt, the poster boy's got to be cuttlefish. (gasps) Absolutely stunning. You know, these things have these chromatophores, they change colour with them moods, they have these big eyes, they're beautiful, they need the kelp to attach their eggs to, so you see these baby cuttlefish with their oversized eyes, they're absolutely so cute, they're stunning. What I also really love is that we're talking about marine habitats in this podcast, but ultimately it's the Let's Love Mollusks uh, podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you're here to help the kelp, how are you helping the kelp? Uh, So I work with the Blue Marine Foundation, as already stated, now in collaboration with the Blue Marine Foundation, we're working with the Sussex Wildlife Trust, the local fishing authorities and with other universities so the University of Portsmouth and the University of Sussex and what we're doing is establishing a no-go zone if you will for what we call mobile fishing methods so all things like pear trawling dredging 
oyster fishing, all of these activities will impact the kelp. Because effectively what you're doing is you're mowing it down, aren't you? So what we what we want to do is say to the fishermen, fish with less impactful methods such as using pots and static nets. So don't drag your gear on the bottom. Let the benthic communities, i.e. the kelp, regrow. You can still fish. And so uh, we have a comparative site called the Lime Bay. And what we've done is a similar thing where the fishermen now only fish with static fishing methods. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is since, I think, over the last 12 years or so, the benthic communities or the reef communities there have grown to such an extent the habitat complexity has come back so much, the fishery biomass has increased by fourfold. Excellent. So it's a win-win. So what's happening is now the fishermen are fishing with less effort, but catching more. That's the message, right? So we want to roll that out to the Help Our Kelp project. Mm. The principal aspect being, let's restore the kelp in the area that we want to, which is from Chichester to Brighton. It's 170 square kilometres. And what we want to do is regenerate the kelp. Now that's going to bring back, believe it or not, almost 100% of the wildlife. So what that's going to do in areas where the fishermen can fish sustainably with low impact methods, they're going to catch loads more fish. And the fishermen outside of the area where they're not allowed to trawl, there's going to be what we call spillover to areas where the trawlers can go. Mm. So they're going to benefit as well. So you're essentially kind of selling the dream, really. And it works. We know it works. We have the data. So primarily then you're restoring the kelp by having this collaboration really with, with fishermen. Absolutely. That's, that's so, the main so way with, of doing it. With all of these things to work, you have to have active collaborations and very good ties with local stakeholders, with the fishermen, with the business owners of the area. They need to know what you're doing and it's a 50-50. You know, so, okay, guys, we're going to have a no trawling zone here because A, B, C and D, but you can fish with pots and static nets and you will catch fish, but these are the benefits for the future of what's going to happen. Mm. For example, with the Help Our Cow project in Sussex, we've had the ecosystem services priced up with the total area of restoration, the total amount of ecosystem services value to the local communities per oh, year. Hit us. In terms of improved fisheries, water quality, carbon drawdown in terms of diving, tourism, all of these things is over three million pounds a year. That's insane. It's staggering, isn't it? It is absolutely staggering, yeah. yes. As I said, it sounds like you're really trying to sell the dream. So I could kind of think there's never going to be any barriers in your way if you come with this message, but there must be some. There's always barriers. There are many. Now, what we need to do is address the public. This is why we need kelp. This is why it's important. Food provisioning, for one thing. Okay, so it's going to provide lots of fish, lots of future fisheries and future biomass. It's going to sustain local economies. It reduces wave energy by up to 70%. There's lots of benefits. Mm. But politically, there's also issues as well. Okay, so, you know, the fishermen will always push back and say, look, no, 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 we've been fishing here. But it's what we call the sliding baseline syndrome. In the 80s, there was lots of kelp. And before that, there was even more. But you get used to what you're doing now. If the fishermen, I think they're starting to warm to the idea, if we can get the kelp back, they will benefit from this even more than what they're benefiting now. So can kelp help oysters as well? Absolutely. Now, kelp, as I said, is what we call an ecosystem engineer. That's a very posh word for a key species for an ecosystem. Now, kelp will draw down carbon, big tip, we know that. But what it does within the marine environment, it reduces dissolved CO2. So if you increase atmospheric CO2, what that's going to do is going to increase hydrogen ions in the water, which decreases the pH. In other words, it increases ocean acidification. Welcome so, to the Wild Chemistry Podcast. <laughs> so absolutely. So, so to it. simplify it, what kelp does, it reduces CO2 by pumping out more oxygen into the water. It increases alkalinity, so it reduces your acidity. So therefore, it will benefit oysters that way. It improves oxygen, so it oxygenates the water. And kelp will uptake nitrates and phosphates, so it reduces eutrophication for oysters. So the two go hand in hand. And we get what we call ecosystem resilience. Definitely. And I think there was a study in Australia where it shows they're doing early trials of kelp restoration and oyster restoration together. And I think it showed that the kelp movement in the water column has helped reduce sedimentation smothering so oysters they often get smothered by sediment completely so kelp being in the nearby vicinity really helps Absolutely. with that and that's early trials of kind of restoring those two habitats mm. together which i think 
with limited funding and limited resources, trying to do two together seems like a double win, might you say. So Celine, last but by no means least, we have one more habitat for today. Seagrass. What do seagrasses look like? Is it a seagrass meadow? Exactly, that's exactly it. So imagine an underwater meadow and it provides a home for a diversity of species as well. What I like as well that I've seen is when the tide goes out, the seagrass obviously remains on the seabed, so it completely flattens. And as the tide comes in, the seagrass comes back to life and springs back up and becomes that underwater meadow, as you say. And I think we're going to introduce our final guest, Dr. Richard Unsworth from Swansea University, who has been involved with Project Seagrass, who can tell us a little bit more about why we're restoring seagrass. Well, seagrass is, I like the, the sort of powerhouses of our oceans, they exist on on the coastal and shallow seas of 126 countries around the world. And they provide a huge function in terms of initially their primary productivity, but the sort of services that, that come from that, whether that's supporting biodiversity, whether it's helping to store carbon from our atmosphere, whether it's about stabilizing sediments, protecting our coasts, filtering our water and having this huge function in terms of providing a a nursery role for uh, one-fifth of the world's biggest fisheries. Wherever you go around the world, there are people fishing in seagrasses. And in some parts of the world, that fishing activity is at a recreational uh, level. Uh, Many areas in the world, that is actually a subsistence level with many people dependent upon the animals in that seagrass to support their livelihoods. Wow, so really we've got another superhero habitat of the marine world here. How are they doing in the UK? In the UK and in many parts of the world, over time, they've not been on the conservation agenda. They've been uh, never considered to be an important part of uh, our marine resources. And with that, particularly in the UK, they've declined. And they've not just declined in some sort of small way. Seagrasses uh, have reduced in cover by 92%. So most of the, the most of the coast around the UK would have had seagrass in it at some point. 50% of the estuaries around the UK no longer have seagrass in them. And, you know, it's not one big impact that, that's caused that loss. We, we were at the centre of the Industrial Revolution. Our, our coastline has been full of mining activities for centuries, maybe thousands of years. We have a lot of historic pollution. We have a lot of change that's gone on with our coast. We've uh, degraded the water quality. And we've added further and further impacts to that with increasing coastal development. In 2020, we continue to damage seagrass. Poor water quality in many places remains a a problem. Those problems facing seagrass uh, are still present. I guess it'd be really interesting to know what biodiversity is supported by seagrass beds. What would be the poster species? Seagrasses are incredibly biodiverse, about 30 times the amount of animals in them compared to an adjacent sand flat or mud habitat. There's all the birds that take that sort of terrestrial link to uh, seagrass. We get the Brent geese, we get the widgeon, we get some of the foraging seabirds, and then we get all the actual uh, marine fauna. But the real post child in, in my mind is the fact that those cod that um, we all uh, love in our fish and chips, those pollock, those whiting, that they spend a critical uh, period of their lifetime in a seagrass meadow. Um, It doesn't mean that uh, they're dependent totally on seagrass, but if they spend time in a seagrass meadow as a, a juvenile, their chances of survival in the long term are much, much higher. So it's a case that, you know, if you're sending your child to a, a nursery school, then you want that child to be looked after. You want it to be sheltered. You want it to be well fed. And that, that's what's happening when a, a juvenile cod ends up in a, a seagrass meadow. It's got lots of places to hide. It's got lots of places to, to easily find food. It's not stressed. Its chances of actually spawning in the years to come are much higher. So for cod's sake is the is the poster child that, that we use. For cod's sake, save seagrass. That's the critical thing. We tend to focus on the things that really matter to people. And, and that's a supply of food. Definitely. Yeah, I feel I like it's a very that. smart one. Smart one to choose. Absolutely. I love the analogy with a nursery school as well. That's brilliant. So how would we go about restoring the nursery school of the cod? Restoration of any marine or terrestrial uh, habitat is not easy. It's not cheap. It's far cheaper to save the habitat in the first place rather than actually restoring it. But the reality in, in a UK context with seagrass is that 
we do now need to, to restore seagrass. And to do that, you've got to get a whole series of building blocks in place first. Just because there was seagrass there once doesn't mean that that place is suitable for it now. And regulators and governments struggle with that concept. Other places that may not have had ever had seagrasses might actually be more suitable for it now than those locations that historically had it just because of changes to um, our coastlines over time. You need to ensure that that place is suitable in terms of the environmental conditions. It's sheltered, it's got soft sediments, it's in the right depth range. It's got water that's clear enough for plants to photosynthesize. The, the nutrients aren't too high. There's no uh, pollutants that are causing a, a significant problem. But importantly, you need to know that that stressor that could have once been in that place or not is not there anymore. Whether that's boating, whether it's major disturbances from uh, dredging. And with that, you need to also have support from the, the local communities, the key stakeholders to ensure that people are happy to support that, that restoration. And over in West Wales, we've been pioneering the, uh, the, the first seagrass restoration project ever in, in the UK. It's taken us a lot of time to get to that point where we had all those building blocks in place. We've had some challenging moments in trying to work with stakeholders to ensure that we've got people in support of our projects. And we're, we're in a good position now going forward. Once you've, once you've got all those things in place, you've got to think about the plants. You've got to actually restore the habitat. You've got to then undertake the, uh, the underwater gardening, shall we say. Firstly, you need to think about where you're going to get your propagules from, whether that's seeds or whether it's transplants. And whether you, you have a, a method that's suitable for, for planting them. We've been doing some trials on seagrass restoration over in, in Western Wales since 2013. And we've taken a, a route that sort of aligns to the, the work that's gone on in Chesapeake Bay in the US, where they've had the most successful seagrass restoration projects that have ever been undertaken. And because we have such big tides in the UK, large currents, we've got a lot of beasties that, that, that want to eat young seagrass uh, shoots or seeds. We've had to develop methods that take the best of the, the activities of Chesapeake Bay, but also reflect the, uh, the conditions in the UK. And what we've come up with is using these little Hessian bags. So we basically fill them with, with sand and we put seagrass seeds into them. Then we string them out on lines and lower them onto the seabed. But to get to that point, we have to collect those seeds. We have to go to sites. And fortunately, seagrass is a bit like a, an oak tree. <clears throat> oak trees produce huge amounts of acorns. Seagrasses produce huge amounts of seeds. So <clears throat> the meadow that we've done most of our seed collections in, a place called Porston Flying in, in North Wales, we've estimated that, that that meadow contains billions of seeds. And uh, we're taking sort of half a million seeds at a time. So it's clearly a drop in the ocean. And the reality is that just like oak trees, most of those seeds actually go unused, don't develop into seedlings and uh, aren't actually contributing to the maintenance and extension of, of the seagrass meadow. So it's almost like a, a no brainer to go in there and let's take these seeds and put them to good use somewhere else where they can actually grow and uh, develop into a, to a meadow. Over the last couple of years, we've had uh, an army of volunteers helping us, people from all sectors of society, from kids in schools to uh, OAP groups to uh, individuals, excited individuals to, to marine biologists coming along and helping us collect seeds in the field by wading at low tide, by snorkeling, by scuba diving, then coming back to Swansea University and processing those seeds and then uh, planting them into these into these bags. So it's been a, a huge operation that's taken an enormous amount of commitment from a lot of really passionate volunteers who understand the problems that our oceans face. It's amazing to, to see their, their commitment and their, the support we, we've got. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So how's the um, restoration project in West Wales been going? Very well. This February, uh, we planted 750,000 seeds. So we, we hope before the end of the year to have planted 1.2 million seeds into Dale Bay in, in uh, West Wales. Uh, the biggest uh, project of its kind in the UK. Oh. Have you managed to get the opportunity to dive on an area where the meadow has been restored? And I'd imagine that's so rewarding. Or is it benefit seeing in, in the long term? It, it will take a decade yeah. to turn into a meadow. That, that's for sure. It's, it's, it's not a, a quick recovery. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, 
uh, seagrass seeds are not incredibly viable. So a million, uh, 1.2 million seeds may well only end up turning into 50,000 or 100,000 plants. But those plants themselves will spread over time. They will grow and develop. I think we're now in a, a very good place. I expect the project to be a success in the long term, without a doubt. Definitely. That's so interesting. I guess it's quite similar to the native oyster in terms of the survival from larvae to mature oyster. I guess it's something that we're investing in in, in a view of a long term recovery rather than a quick recovery, um, which is quite tricky when you're trying to rebuild such a vastly declined habitat. It'd be interesting to know, you mentioned a bit about the lessons learned. So perhaps maybe we could go on to the key barriers to restoring seagrass. I, I guess trying to find sites that are, are suitable for seagrass is is a, a big barrier but the the two biggest things are about trying to scale it up to a meaningful level we have a, a target uh, together with wwf to plant 30 kilometers squared of seagrass in the next 10 years it sounds crazy it sounds ambitious but um but the biggest problem is government and trying to actually undertake seagrass restoration through a, a sort of legislative framework that's never really dealt with restoration of the ocean is like trying to put a, a square block through a, a round hole. In terms of our uh, licensing, we're, we're treated like we're resource extractors and every level of government is not set up to support uh, seagrass restoration, whether that's in terms of environmental legislation, in terms of ports and big users, in terms of the Crown Estate. We've had some uh, incredible support from individuals in Natural Resources Wales, the Environment Agency in England, but they, they really struggle with a process that isn't fit for purpose. and. Yeah. Uh, that really needs to, to fundamentally change and enable supporting biodiversity enhancement or nature-based solutions to uh, climate change. That's really interesting. Uh, Celine, is that a similar situation for your oyster work in terms of that legislation is a big obstacle? I feel like our conversations with all of the speakers throughout this podcast, it's been quite a similar narrative. And I think a lot is due to the kind of shifting baselines and how our marine habitats have changed a lot over the years. So trying to understand what it once was and what we're trying to get to, I think there's a, a bit of discrepancy perhaps around that. And I think it does take these restoration projects that are relatively new, you know, about five to 10 years old, demonstrating what's possible, showing what we can achieve with a certain amount of money, and then saying, we need to scale this up in order to have that impact. There are funding pots and opportunities to create guidance material. So that's something that we're going to be working on for Seagrass is putting together guidance on how to do this restoration with the hope that in the future it might become easier for people to be able to establish their own project. And we've actually just produced one for oysters as well. And that was all funded through the Environment Agency. So I think there is an appreciation and an acknowledgement of the impact these projects can have. I really want to see kind of where all these projects go in the next five to 10 years. I can imagine revisiting this in, in a a few years time and seeing the progress that has been made. Thank you to all our speakers who took part in today's episode. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners, and a very special thank you to Moni, who's been hosting the ZSL Wild Science podcast since it started in 2018. If you enjoyed today's recording, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. You can find us on Twitter at ZSL Science and Facebook at ZSL Science and Conservation. As a charity, your support helps ZSL to care for the amazing animals in our zoos and protect wild life around the world through our science and conservation work. If you're able to, you can donate on our website at www.donate.zsl.org or join ZSL as a fellow to get closer to conservation and science. 